The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Turn us on and the satisfaction's guaranteed. Frank discussion with passion on CJD 800. Coming up after 10.15, Maitre Linda Hammerschmidt joins us. She will answer all of your family law questions. So whether you're going through a divorce, a separation, you want uh, information about living together, custody issues, any of that, she will answer all of your questions here after 10.15. But first... Time to check out our inbox. Your texts are always welcome. Connect with passion at 514-800. Remember, you can also call me at 514-790-0800 and feel free to email me anytime to laurie at drlaurie.com. First question of the night. Is it unreasonable to hope for mind-blowing sex when you've been together for years? That's a great question and uh, asked in many different ways from couples, especially couples who have been together for, uh, for the long term. It's not that it's reasonable or unreasonable, but you might want to redefine what mind-blowing is because if you're thinking of the beginning of a relationship, the passion you feel when you first have sex with someone new, something's happening in the brain at that point. The, the, the fact that it's new, there's this chemical reaction um, and the, it's the dopamine basically in our brains and what they thrive on these new experiences, on these uh, novel experiences. But over time, clearly sex with the same person won't necessarily provoke the same kind of excitement. So if you want to get more of this dopamine thrill with the same person, you're going to have to mix things up a bit. You're going to have to experiment. You're going to have to not do the same old, same old. Change up positions. Change where you uh, where you have sex. If you're always having sex at night, try doing it in the morning. Try learning. Uh, try introducing sex toys or getting a little kinkier or learn a new skill, like learn a tantric sex together, take a workshop. Like these are the kinds of things that, um, with a new part, with an old person, not an old person, but a person you've been with for a long time, you can kind of get a little bit more of, of that rush, but it's never going to be the same as if it was somebody completely New, So that's a reality, the reality of long-term monogamous relationships. So we need to know that going into uh, into marriage and relationships. Another question, I am very happily married to a beautiful and sexy woman. We enjoy a very passionate and satisfying sex life. My wife and I very much enjoy trying new things together. Well, there you go. Uh, And we have recently become curious about the practice of analingus. Please advise me if there are any health risks in a monogamous and healthy couple like ourselves engaging in anal oral stimulation, both for the giver and the receiver. Thoroughly enjoy your show and look forward to your advice. Uh, so, okay. There's no real, uh, health risk as long as the, you know, you take showers and you take uh, hygiene measures. Uh, there's no, no real danger. The only danger is you cannot go 
from anus to vagina because of the the spread of uh, bacteria. So it's just, especially when it comes to penetration, that's more important than with uh, with anal oral stimulation. But if you shower beforehand, um, I really don't see where there could be a problem for the receiver or the giver, especially when we're talking about anal oral stimulation. It's on the outside, not on the inside. So like I said, if there's penetration, whether you put a finger inside, you would not want to put a finger or a penis that's been in, in the anus and then go to the vagina with that. That would be a, a kind of a big no-no. How can I feel sexy when I don't like my body anymore? Well, this is something I think a lot of people struggle with, men and women alike, which of course can happen at any age. You can have some young people who feel the same way and certainly as we get older, our bodies change, we get gravity takes over a little bit, Um, but that doesn't mean that you should stop feeling sexy. And part of the problem is when you feel not sexy, you don't act sexy and you it doesn't make you feel good in the long run and sometimes you avoid you end up avoiding sexuality, etc. So it it doesn't help us, right? Um try and dr- like dress for yourself too. Um wear sexy underclothing for yourself. Like if you keep comparing yourself to a perfect ideal, like you compare yourself to say, you know, a young body or someone you see in porn or or what have you, uh, that's not going to help you. That doesn't help uh, any of us, right? So find some things that you like about your body and focus on those things. But just you've got to stop worrying about that. Sexy is a state of mind. It isn't about the body. You can speak to people who are, uh, I've spoken to women who are big, uh, bigger women who are absolutely sexy and exude a whole lot of sexiness. Why is that? Because they're confident in their bodies, no matter their size. Uh, they don't look in the mirror and criticize every part of their bodies. They love their curves. They find the cl- the, the clothes that they want to wear, etc. So it, that's important. Like that's a whole body image issue that you need to kind of work on. Uh, this texter writes: uh, Many people, including popular celebrities, suffer from body image issues. However, clearly personal conduct and composure can nevertheless be controlled. Given I've suffered from body image issues all my life, despite always having been very popular amongst both men and women of all ages all my life, and still receive constant compliments today at 55, including on my carrying myself confidently. So clearly, although we all possess emotional insecurities, we do nevertheless still have some degree of control as to whether we choose to either advertise them or keep them in check thereby maintaining our dignity and integrity nonetheless. I I think the message here is how you carry yourself because it's true. I do believe that we all have some insecurities. Like, I mean, some people, maybe there's a, a select few that have zero insecurities, but I think for the most part we have insecurities and, um, we shouldn't let 
like we have control over do we let them take over or uh, do we act in a different way? And I think that this texture is, is being very clear about that. So thank you for sharing that. I was wondering when this question was going to come up again. It's been a while. Uh, does size really matter? Can a person have intercourse with an erection from four and a half to five and a half inches? Well, yes, you can have intercourse with much smaller than that. In fact, I think what you're asking is, will a partner be okay with this? So first you need to know that four and a half to five and a half inches is uh, a perfectly average, normal, falls within the normal range. It's the world average of penis size, erect. Um, so really like, what do women need? Some women will tell you, yes, size matters. Some women will tell you girth matters more than length. Some women, uh, the majority of women really need a lot of clitoral stimulation. So they are better with hands and mouth than uh, a, a penis. So if you're a really good lover and take care of your partner's pleasure, it's not, it's not a big penis that makes you um, a good lover. So, uh, any size penis can provide some pleasure, but you have to know what you're doing with it and what your partner wants and how to pleasure your partner. That's the most important part of it. Coming up, we'll have different kinds of questions, uh, being asked tonight. Maitre Linda Hammerschmidt, a family law attorney will join us to answer any questions, concerns, things that you may be going through legally in terms of family law. From the pleasure and the politics to the hang-ups and the heartbreak, you're listening to Passion, CJD 800. Joining me on the line is Maitre Linda Hammerschmidt. She is a family law attorney. She is here to answer your questions. So if you're going through uh, what is generally something pretty awful, <clears throat> which is a divorce, and usually with the questions we get, they're pretty messy. Uh, so if you've got a messy situation and you want to talk it out with our in-house lawyer, I'm very pleased to have Maitre Linda Hammerschmidt on the line with us. Hi, Linda. Good evening, Lori. Thank you for taking the time. I know how tired and taxing your job is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to, say, to put it mildly. To put it mildly. Yes, I know. Uh, 514-800 to text in any questions you have or 514-790-0800. So I'll start off with a couple of questions here that I got. Um, Linda, if we signed a divorce agreement and my ex agreed not to touch my pension, can he come back later and demand half? Well, uh, as I always like to say, anybody can always ask anything. doesn't mean they're going to be successful, but they will end up giving you a headache as a result. It's right. obviously going to depend on how conclusively uh, written the uh, the last paragraphs of any divorce agreement and the renunciation to any further claims uh, the more that's why it's very important uh, when people are doing a consent for their divorce that they put in as much information about the finances and the incomes and the assets of the parties so that should one or the other try to come back afterwards and there has been a renunciation to all sorts of claims uh, in the original consent 
that uh, the court will be able to see that uh, Monsieur or Madame knew about all of this stuff, and yet they put their John Hancock at the bottom of that agreement, mm-hmm. and it must be because they understood and decided that they weren't going to partition it because they either got something else or they wanted to benefit the other spouse. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why somebody doesn't partake of a pension plan, you know, what the amount is, what their pension plan might be worth, all sorts of things. Right. You know what I find, what I hear in my practice sometimes is uh, people who are ready to, to just call it quits and they... They're like, I don't want anything. I just want out. Yeah, I'm they, like, want r- they want to rush. Yeah. They, they kind of, it. exactly. They just want to get it done with and get rid of the person in their lives. And they don't care about the money. And it's like, you, you have to say, whoa, Nelly, like take, take a breather. Because they, if they sign at that moment when they're feeling this way, like maybe six months later or a year later, they'll think, wow, was I, you know, I acted completely emotionally and didn't really think about this. Well, we're actually involved in a case today uh, uh, that's ongoing about that. Somebody's trying to say that they didn't understand, and in this particular case, it's the man who didn't understand really uh, what the uh, the two experts on both sides had uh, agreed to, and the, and uh, this particular person uh, and the experts and the other party all signed this consent about. Uh, what had been agreed to and is now claiming that uh, didn't understand uh, nobody explained anything to him. Mm-hmm. And what are the chances of uh, winning that? Well, in this particular case, I think it's going to be difficult since the judge uh, who ruled uh, uh, at the divorce hearing uh, did put in his judgment that this particular person's credibility was uh, questionable uh, at best. Ah. Okay. So but again, doesn't mean that people don't have to go through this all again. So Right. Because when one person, unfortunately what happens in I think in a situation like this is one person takes the other one back to court. The other one doesn't want to go back, but what well, guess what? Now they have to pay for more lawyers fees exactly. to be able to fight this. Exactly. So, and there are people I've seen this too where they 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 take their ex-spouse to court for sometimes like ridiculous things just to force them to pay for legal fees yeah it's also a way for them to interact with their former spouse in a bad way in a a (laughs) very bad appropriate manner but nonetheless for that person that's their goal sometimes right well yeah I suppose Which is it. why they should be seeing you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I want ex-spouses in my office at this point. I don't want to do that kind of mediation. Okay. I'd like to help them survive to get to the level where they don't go to divorce court and don't have to hire lawyers. Oh, my goodness. Um, all right, another question for Maitre Linda Hammerschmidt. How do I prove parental alienation? I know we've had this one before. Well, it's it's a series of behaviors, uh, words, actions on the part of one pa- parent uh, that influences uh, the child or children in question to not want to be with the other parent. It uh, can be very difficult and it usually must involve experts who are going to evaluate 
if the child, in fact, is uh, making statements uh, of their own volition or if they're being negatively influenced mm-hmm. by one or other of the parents. Right. Now, it's, not you... an e- it's not an easy, that's, that's harder uh, part of a divorce or uh, after divorce litigation than, uh, you know, discussing the uh, how much is in the bank account. Exactly. And, uh, exactly. You know, how much the house is worth. Right. But I'm also thinking like if you have, let's say, uh, older kids and the parent, you know, engages in this parental alienation and the kids say, well, I don't want to go with mom or I don't want to go with dad um, because they've been, let's say, manipulated into this. Then what? Like they they can't be forced to go if they're of a certain age, can they? Of a certain age, no. I mean, even if a, a judge renders a judgment that says you'll go and visit your father uh, every second weekend to a 16-year-old, and the 16-year-old basically says, no, uh, you right. know, you're not going to, or you should not have or involve the police or try to have your child picked up by the police for your custody access. And it's very frustrating. And sometimes, as difficult as it is, sometimes the best course of action is to just let it go. Very hard, I know, to say that. Yeah. But you're if you're fighting a losing battle at one point or another, sometimes, like the song says, you have to let it go hmm. if it comes back. doesn't always happen, and sometimes it could take a decade or more, but Yeesh. sometimes people come around to understand that, oh, my gosh, I should never have been that way with my parents, and I'm so right. sorry. But, but you right. know, some, some kids, it's, it's ruined for life. Wow, that is, to me, that is the saddest, saddest situation when that happens. It is, and uh, have one right at the moment where the mother is, you know, bad-mouthing and the kids are, you know, older, and uh, what used to be a good relationship with both children, and now one refuses to go, and the other one's trying to placate both parents, and it's very stressful for everybody concerned, I'm sure. Yeah, this is the ugly side, the really, really, really ugly side, and I'm sure you see this, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, quite a bit. too often, yeah, or I, all the time. Yeah, I don't know how you do it, Linda. <laughs> so I don't either. I, I say this to you every week, every month. I, I have a question for the audience for when they come back. Yeah? Okay, well, ask your question, and they can think spouses, about it. Spouses, what is their obligation to contribute to expenses of the marriage? What is the spouse's obligation to contribute to expenses of the of marriage? marriage? You mean the yeah. marriage, the wedding, the... No, no, no. During the life of the marriage, Okay. what, what are the spouse's obligations vis-a-vis all the expense of mortgage, the taxes, et cetera, et cetera, or anybody in the civil union? It's the same. Uh, it's going to be the same answer for both. Interesting. All right. Well, uh, let's see if anybody has the answer to that. And Linda, I hope you'll give us the answer if nobody gets it. Of uh, course. Right. Good. Um, here's another uh, question for you. I have an ex-husband who is quite abusive. He doesn't stop harassing me. I want to get a restraining order, order but how will this affect custody? Well, uh, 
a restraining order, if you get one, has nothing to do with custody. It's between the parents or the spouses. I'm assuming I'm assuming the exchange of kids or something. You know, where where if you if you have a restraining order and the well, first of all, you should have an, a, a judgment or an agreement about the exchange of children. And if the person's going to be harassing you, you should try to uh, get an order uh, where the children are. Uh, you know, there's there's minimal contact between the parents. Unfortunately, that's not the best and optimal uh, way for the life to continue. But you know, so pickups are made by the parent who's going to have access. Goes to the school, doesn't have okay, to, the other to the house, right? And dropped off at you know McDonald's if it's Sunday, and the other parent picks the child up at the McDonald's. Makes and, sense. And uh, I always recommend that either side. Uh, bring, you know, uh, a neutral witness, not your mother, not, you know, mm-hmm. somebody that... But a friend or something. ...is less than uh, 100%, because obviously, normally speaking, your own parents are going to support you. And right, right, right. The other one's parents are going to support them, so, you know, somebody... Makes sense. Uh, you know, the mailman, whatever right. you... Makes sense. Uh, more of your questions answered by Metro Linda Hammerschmidt coming up, a family law attorney... It's Sex Out Loud, and you're welcome to listen in. Passion on CJAD 800. Help! My ex-wife manipulates my kids. And then some. Maitre Linda Hammerschmidt will answer this question next. The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. the pleasure and the politics to the hang-ups and the heartbreak you're listening to passion cjd 800 tonight it's all about family law and you so if you've got a situation or a friend with a situation uh, legally speaking, that has to do with uh, divorce or separation. Metro Linda Hammerschmidt answers your questions at 514-800 to text in, or you can call in at 514-790-0800. Now, Linda, you had a question uh, for our listeners. Can you repeat the question? And then I think I may have somebody gave me an answer. Okay, so the question was, what is the obligation uh, between spouses or partners of a civil union Uh, with regards to the expenses during the marriage. So one texter writes, financial contributions by each party should be proportionate to their earnings. If the husband earns twice that of wife, then he contributes twice as much as the wife to the marriage. That's part of the answer. That's correct. The other part is that a part one of the two spouses contribution can be made by, shall we say, service. Uh, For example, taking care of the children, running the household, doesn't have to be monetary. So how do you monetize that, though? Like, how do you calculate that? That's the job of a court. (laughs) Let's just say that if, uh, you know, you're running the kids to the doctors and their appointments and the activities and you're doing the homework and you're doing the dusting and all of that, 
uh, a court is going to probably come to the conclusion that you're co- and and you know you're not sitting on three million dollars at the same time. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't have a big income. Uh, maybe you don't have any income. Uh, a court's going to be sensitive to the fact that well, you, while you don't have money to put into the mortgage or the the, the taxes or whatever, uh, you're doing your part by doing all of this other these other things which therefore saves money to the family because you don't have to hire anybody to do it all. Right. And, of course, this is the situation for a lot of, um, like, stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home dads where one partner works and the other one, they where they make a decision. Often, you know, usually they make a decision together. Okay, you'll stay home or I'll stay home or whatever it is. Yeah, so it's that, interesting because when you say together, they make that decision together. But when they're getting divorced, it's... <laughs> I kept telling her to go to work because she wouldn't go to work or uh, vice versa. Right. Or he told me that I didn't have to go to work, so I didn't go to work. Either way. So in a situation, let's just say, let's take this, a a stay-at-home mom who's been at home for, let's say, 15 years. So she gave up her career. She had, they had the children, they decided together that the, the, she was going to stay at home. And obviously 15 years later, 20 years later. Well, you're off the job market, Joe. Right. You haven't been in the job market. It's a daunting task to go out there and reinvent yourself. You don't have the skills because you didn't keep up to it, up with and, it. And a certain proportion of the population is getting divorced aren't bilingual. Okay, so, so that's an impediment to getting a job. So what's the obligation then when you get divorced of the other spouse who does work? Like, does that mean they have to uh, support them, like spousal support forever? There's no set parameter for that. The court looks at what they consider to be whether it's a long-term marriage. Okay. So if you have uh, people who got married, let's say they're 30 and they spent 30 years together and all that time or next to all of that time, uh, the wife didn't uh, go to work because, and the husband did and he didn't he accepted it one way or another. Either it was a joint decision or time went by and he must have noticed at one point or another that she wasn't working, <laughs> and he didn't say, get the hell out. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, in those particular circumstances, and obviously depending on uh, the, the income of the working spouse, uh, yeah, chances are uh, alimony can be for life. Uh-huh. <laughs> that of the payor or that of the payee. Uh, and, but if it's like a five-year marriage and the parties are in their 30s, the court's not going uh, right. to you know, give them, unless in those five years she had five kids. Right. Then she yeah. then the court might say, okay, for the next 10 or 15 years, I guess. So until... what, what everybody has to always remember is it's your own fact pattern that's going to determine often uh, how a judge is going to rule. It's not because your friend in uh, Il Bazaar uh, got X, Y, and Z, that that means you're going to get it too if you're living in a completely different lifestyle and, and the modus operandi of how everything works and how many kids there are, and et cetera. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, here's another question. Uh, that I think it's similar to the parental alienation, but my ex-wife manipulates my kids, tells them I don't give money, etc., which is a huge lie. 
How do I fight this? I hate that she gets the kids involved like this. Yeah, well, even when you put clauses in uh, consents often that neither party will denigrate the other to the children, people are who they are. Mm. Um, it's also going to depend on, uh, you know, how old the children are if you're going to tell them what's happening, you know. If you're not going to sit down a five-year-old and say, look it, here's, here's my paycheck and here's what mommy gets and so on and so forth. So you would do that if for an older child, Linda? Well, I might. I don't know if anybody else would, and I don't recommend that kids of tender ages and even, you know, even, you know, because the divorce is going to affect them badly too. So Right. They, they're, and they're torn because either they feel they have to agree with mom when they're with mom and agree with dad when they're with dad, and they don't get to really have their own feelings because they're placating uh, their, <sighs> their parents. They're acting like the parents instead of the parents. Right. So uh, it's it's a very difficult, as we said in the beginning, very difficult and sad situation when one parent who's mad for whatever reason and is using the children to get back at the other uh, spouse, and usually what ends up happening is that the children are going to be scarred one way or another down the road for their relationships. So sad. Another another situation. Yeah. Uh, another question, am I entitled to a widow's pension, common law? The old... I know you hate the word. Yeah, the term. I hate the I know. But, yeah, yeah. Well, certainly, uh, for example, if somebody's working at, uh, I don't know, Air Canada, for example, and it has its own set of rules and, uh, and partition, but they're not married... Um, uh, and unless the person working at Air Canada has designated their partner uh, as an irrevocable beneficiary, uh, chances are no, they won't partition a widow's pension. Uh, on the other hand, uh, normally speaking, uh, the government recognizes, for fiscally speaking, like in the regime de rente Quebec, uh, that there could be a partition there, but it's very difficult. So people need to know what the pension plans of their partners or spouses mm-hmm. are and the rules uh, for each because they, they vary across the board. Different companies have different rules and how they split the pension and how they determine the actuarial value. Mm-hmm. Just because you get a statement, one of the partners gets a statement uh, every year that says you have accumulated, uh, let's say, $50,000 or whatever, doesn't mean that by the time he, he or she reaches retirement that the value is going to be 50 It's maybe you're going to get 50 but in order to get 50 the company has kicked in money. You've kicked in money over time. Hopefully it's grown over time. And uh, the value could actually be something like a couple of hundred thousand dollars to be mm-hmm. able to sustain a fifty thousand dollar salary. So basically, okay. you're saying check the pension, the, your partner's pension, wherever they worked, to see that you are yeah, the beneficiary. Yeah, on the rules governing that particular pension plan, you may have to hire a uh, actuary to determine the real value upon a split. Right, but it's it's not the question of the value. It was the question of the fact that they weren't married. 
and no, are they entitled what I'm to it? Saying is that even if they weren't married, but the, the plan allows for a common law okay. partner gotcha. to, to be a beneficiary. And so long as that beneficiary, in my mind anyway, has been declared irrevocable by the person who's working right. at that company. Right. Because if gotcha. you're not irrevocable, well, you know, you you get out the door and gotcha. your entitlement's going with you. Uh, coming up, can I prevent my ex from moving to another province with the kids? A safe place to work out the kinks in any relationship. It's Passion with CGAD 800's Dr. Lori Batito. You still have a bit of time to get your questions answered by Metra Linda Hammerschmidt. She is a family law attorney. She joins us every month, the last Thursday of every month, to help out our listeners. She's always gracious with her time and knowledge. Uh, 514-800 to text us, or you can always call at 514-790-0800. Uh, can I prevent my ex from moving to another province with the kids? Yes and no. <laughs> okay. Okay. So first of all, I don't know if these people are married or not married. Not that that's the, uh, exactly uh, well, makes give us a both difference. Scenarios. Except that in the Divorce Act, uh, there are articles that say you must facilitate the relationship of the other parent with the children when ah. you're splitting up or whatever. Um, it all comes down to what's in the best interest of the children, as determined by courts and sometimes by the experts who file reports for the benefit of the court, and what the motive is for moving, if it's to uh, hinder the access of the other parent, they're not going to be able to move. If it's really because, let's take an example from before, we're talking about somebody uh, who's married and getting divorced and doesn't isn't bilingual and has families in Alberta and nothing here. They moved from Alberta here to be with this person. The marriage is broken down, uh, and the only way they can get a job and become financially independent, which is a goal of uh, a spouse after divorce, in as far as is possible, pursuant to the Supreme Court rulings. Um, then, you know, chances are good on the part of the person wanting to move that that will be granted. So it's all a question of the facts and uh, how they're presented and, again, who you end up in front of who's judging your case. Yeah, that when you say that, I always like, ah, oh, that's like, it doesn't matter how great your case is. It's like, I don't know, does it depend on the judge's mood? Uh, like... How, I thought, you know, you always think, oh, judges are supposed to be objective and like... Yeah, but they're also human beings, so... Right, right, and they process whatever information you give them, however... Do we really want to throw this all into some computer program like the... uh, Société d'assurance automobile no. Quebec, and if you lose your thumb, it's $200, and if you lose, and so on and so forth. Right, right, right. <clears throat> so, you know, there's no there's no panacea solution to any problems on the planet. No, and and I, and I you have to have a heart, too, to listen to a lot of this stuff. and Or be deaf. Or be deaf. You don't want a judge <laughs> to be deaf. Um, I have seen them fall asleep. 
Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Either that or they're just really listening acutely with their eyes closed. Right. That's true, too. Uh, all right. Uh, another question. My ex claims not to have much money, but his parents do. Do the do the grandparents have any obligations towards the kids? Towards you mean their grandchildren? Yeah, their grandchildren. Not since nineteen ninety six. Why? The, what happened in nineteen ninety six? Because there used to be an article in the code that said that uh, you know support could could extend in, between generations in the vertical line. Really. So, as opposed to the horizontal one, which is your siblings and cousins and whatever. Um, and uh, I don't know who lobbied, whatever, that that was terrible, but uh, it ended up getting struck, and it's over September the 30th, 1996. And any judgments that had been, uh, had ordered any grandparent to pay anything ceased to have validity as of that date. Huh. Now, that being said... <clears throat> I still think that there is um, a, a way around that, but it's onerous and requires, uh, you know, to be able to get a lot of proof. I have a file like this at the moment um, where while the grandparents are not obliged to pay for their grandchildren, the article in the code that says that ascendants in first degree, meaning your, uh, the, let's say, the spouses, their parents, Mm-hmm. And then subsequently, when they have children, the children and the spouses owe each other support. So if the person who's saying, I don't make any money and I can't afford anything and whatever, and you can prove that his parents are wealthy, and then you could ask, if, and in certain cases, if the, this, the, his parents are paying for all sorts of expenses on a regular basis, annual basis all the time and have been during the marriage, then you would ask the court to impute to him a revenue of whatever that might be that he's getting the benefit from from the parents and use that amount to establish support for the children. From the from the grandparents. No. From the parents. Oh, from the from the spouse. We're the saying that Mr X gets let's say $50,000 a year from his uh, parents, parents in right. whatever. They pay the car, they pay the this, who knows the trail. And so, uh, and he says he earns nothing. So uh, ask the judge to uh, impute that his revenue is actually $50,000. Right. And then see with the table what the $50,000 earner should pay for one, two, three, however many children they have. Okay. Makes sense. The only problem there is going to be obviously executing it, but in the particular case that I have, at the moment anyway, the house is in the poor guy who doesn't work's name, mm-hmm. which was an error on their part, but anyway. But didn't they, did they, do they own the house to get, I mean, they got the house after marriage? Uh, Does it matter whose name it is if you're yeah, married? And they, the house is in his name, and it was purchased after the marriage. Uh, but uh, there's a alleged uh, side deal uh, between the father and the his father uh, that uh, a significant amount of money is owed. But still, there's equity in that house. 
So that's the only place that one could execute any judgment, monetary judgment that one gets. Is from the equity that's there. If you convince a judge to impute income to this person and then and then take it out of the house equity by okay. seizing it. Does it? But going back to the that question, because that, that that has come up with some clients where they were worried because either their name wasn't on the house, even though they got the house together, uh, either they the house is all on one's name to protect. I don't know what. I guess to protect a business or bankruptcy, or I'm not sure, yeah. or um, or it's on, you know, maybe just... Well, it's going to depend on if they're married and the house was purchased... After. <clears throat> ...concurrently with or after the marriage took place, it's part of the family patrimony and is divisible as a result. No matter whose name is on that house. Correct. The only problem will be if in this particular circumstance the person got the money from his parents and they signed a debt that said, I owe you a million bucks. Right. The house better be more than a million bucks to have any equity to right. split. Well, sometimes you can, if a parent helps with, uh, let's say, a down payment or what have you, they can have that notarized to say, when you sell the house, you give me back my the portion I've kind of given well, you. Well, that's a, effectively, in a sense, what, what was done by saying that uh, I loaned you all this money and it's due whenever I ask you for it. Okay. And so in the well. event that a, a divorce ends up between <clears throat> the kid and his spouse, uh, they're going to uh, argue about they should have uh, their uh, their money time. back. I want my money back. Yeah. yeah. Linda, take care of yourself this month, and uh, we'll catch up with you again. I can't believe July. July, will <laughs> be practically Christmas again. Oh, stop. <laughs> the Grinch. Enjoy the Linda the Grinch. Thank you so much. Have a great uh, great month. Uh, that's it for us. Thank you so much for all of your questions and for uh, spending time with us. Thanks to our technical producer, Brian Kalisar and Aaron by his side. Uh, then you can connect with me on social media at Dr. Lori Batito or through my website, drlori.com. Coming up next here on CJD, we bring you the CTV National News. All the news you need right here. Have a great rest of the evening and remember to live your life with passion.